Okay, uh, today is July the 31st. This is the last day of July. And, golly, we're already one month past midway of 2012, and it just got here. Didn't it just get here the other day? I know. We'll blink our eyes and it'll be Christmas. You know, for us old folks, uh, not, well, not all of us. You know, Savannah <laughs> is not old. But for the rest of us old, older folks, you know, it goes by fast. And the older you get, the faster it goes. So, Okay, let's prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your mighty word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to be confused and live in a fog because of your gracious system of perception whereby we can understand the whole realm of doctrine. It's just up to us how far do we want to exploit your grace. And it is limitless. We're so thankful for that you are a loving God, a God of compassion and mercy, God of grace. Now we pray that as we study your word that you will help us to focus so that we can file away in our long-term memory the things that we learned this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I left my glasses at home and my black-up glasses at home or somewhere. I don't know where they are. So I'm back to my Sally Jesse, Sally Jesse Raphael glasses tonight. So go ahead and get your laughing over with. Uh, just one quick paragraph out of the Israel My Glory. I thought it was interesting, just a few sentences here. Some of us may not spend time studying doctrine because it appears dreary, overly theological, unexciting, or sometimes even irrelevant to our lives. Yet, if God spoke so often to us about it through his apostles, how can we ignore it? More important, why would we choose to? It is the sword of truth God has given us as an effective tool of spiritual victory. That was by uh, Craig L. Parcell. He's a writer for the Israel My Glory and the article is the seven keys uh, to history. That's where I got that. I thought that was that was good. And you're going to need to keep that in mind as we go over what we're going to cover tonight because we're going to be looking at verses that deal with unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement is a foundational doctrine. It is part of the theology that you have to understand and accept if you're going to get out of spiritual kindergarten. 
It is directly related to the character of God. It has a lot to do with how people think of God's grace. And you would think that it would be pretty cut and dried with regards to people understanding it and accepting it, but that is not the case. There is so much confusion. There is so much false doctrine out there today. We are currently on the L in the acrostic tulip, and the L stands for limited atonement. Out of all of the five points of Calvinism, as far as I'm concerned, this, is, this one is the most dastardly. This is the one that I think does the most damage to God's character. They all link together, but this one is the one that is, for me personally, the hardest one to accept, which I don't accept it, but I guess it borders on being offensive to me that one would allege that God, God's love is so limited that it's only limited to those that he chooses to elect and the rest are doomed for an eternity of damnation because Christ did not pay for their sins according to this idea of unlimited atonement. You know, we've been going through this book. I've been giving you points out of this and then I've been rebutting them. I thought I'd give you a break from that. And this really is the most important part probably of what we're going through and this whole uh, area of getting the gospel right with regards to uh, the Reformed theology and their attack upon the orthodox gospel of Christ, which includes unlimited atonement. Now, I have notes tonight. I'm going to put them up on the board for you. If you have any questions as we go, just raise your hand. And I'll see what I can do. So, unlimited atonement verses. Now, I got this first quote out of my Logos, Logos Bible software. And one of the books there is Got Questions Ministries. Was the, actually, the, the book is called um, Got Questions, the Bible Questions, Bible Questions Answered. And it and it's, was put out by Got Questions Ministries. Now, this is what this person, I don't even know who said it, but it was in that book. I couldn't, couldn't figure out who said it, but at least it was in this book. Uh, <clears throat> and it says uh, the following. Human beings are incapable of fully grasping a concept such as this, and in, in context what that, what that is saying, uh, the concept of limited versus unlimited atonement. What all the Bible has to say about it, this writer is saying that human beings are un, incapable of fully, fully grasping a, a concept such as this. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign and knows all. Yes, human beings are called to make a genuine decision to place faith in Christ and to salvation. These two facts seem contradictory to us, but in the mind of God, they make perfect sense. Now, the reason that I, I, I would take issue with this is because God revealed in His Word things for us to grasp, that we have the capability of grasping. Now, there are things, just like I have in the box here, there are things in the Bible that are inscrutable, but the doctrine of unlimited atonement is not one of them. 
I mean, if someone tells you, all right, I want you to explain in detail the physics, the uh, science, everything it, that we need to know about Christ being the God-man. How could God, Jesus Christ be God and man at the same time? Well, it's inscrutable. We take it by faith that, yes, he was both. Or the virgin birth. That's inscrutable. We don't know how it came about, but we take it by faith that God, God's Word is true and it fits in the whole uh, panorama of the mosaic of the Bible. And so we, we say, okay, it's, it's reasonable, it's logical, it fits, and we, we accept it even though we can't explain it. Now, those things are inscrutable. But we're talking about a basic, fundamental doctrine that has bearing on who our God is and what is our God like. And we can understand these things. God didn't just put it in there to confuse us. And this isn't the first person that I've heard, I think, take the... Uh, sitting on the fence, I guess you would say, attitude. Well, I'm not going to fall on the side of limited atonement. I'm not going to fall on the side of unlimited atonement. I'm just going to sit on the fence and say, we don't know. It's inscrutable. Uh, no one can know. I've heard people on the radio say the same thing, especially when the Reformed theology and this issue of Christ's atonement comes up. They don't want to take a stand because they say, well, no one can know. Well, I don't buy it. I think you can know. And I think you can know just from the Scriptures, which is what we're going to do. We're going to go into Scriptures that have direct bearing on Christ's atonement. Was it for all or was it a few? Was it limited or was it unlimited? That's what we're going to zero in on. And we're going to dissect some of these verses as we go. I'm not just going to read them and pass on because I want you to see why these are so powerful. We're going to slow down and just look at them objectively to see that there's no possible way that these verses can fit into the merit narrative of the Reformed theologists. So, we're going to start with Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. You might jot all these down because, I mean, at least the addresses of these verses because if you ever come in contact with someone that is in Reformed theology, you'll have some ammunition. You all have heard this verse. You hear it every communion Sunday. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Now, that's not the translation that I have, but it will suffice for what we're looking at with regards to unlimited atonement. Now, what would you think when you see that it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray? Would you say that would be all inclusive or is that just all without distinction? Or is it all without exception? What do you think? Yeah, I think just about anybody would have to agree that it's all without exception. And we can go to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to verify that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And uh, 
1 John 1, 7. There's several verses we can go to to say, okay, we're all on the same page. That is all without exception. Every person has gone astray. And then it says, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has called the iniquity of us all. Here you have all again to follow on him. Now, when you're looking at scriptures, a lot of times it's like a mathematical equation. Now, I'm, I'm not very good at math. I, I acknowledge that. Only what, I'm not even going to tell you how I got through uh, algebra in high school. But I do know this, that things have to balance on both sides of the equation. In, in, in algebra, you have A plus uh, B equals C, and C equal, has got to balance out with A and B, that type of thing. And scriptures are very much the same way. So you can't very well have all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, being all without exception, and then it's making comparison in the sense, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of some of us to fall on Him. You see, that would, if that was a mathematical equation, you'd see it right away. But it's the same thing in Scripture. The, it's, he, he, he makes an all without exception to start with. That is his premise. And then he goes into the result, which is also it has to balance. This is the way, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the way uh, Norman Dowdy put it in uh, his Death of Christ in a book on page 73. He said the following. This verse doesn't make sense unless it is read to say that the same all that went astray is the all for whom the Lord died. In the first of these statements, the general apostasy of men is declared. In the second, the particular deviation of each one. In the third, see the second one is each one has turned away from his own way. That's what he's talking about with the general... Uh, with the, uh, second particular deviation of each one. And in the third, the atoning suffering of the Messiah, which is said to be half on, on behalf of all. As the first all is true of all men and not just of the elect, we judge that the last all relates to the same company. I think any person, unless they had a presupposition, would read that and come away with that same idea. All men have gone astray. And he, God the Father, has laid upon him, God the Son, the inequity of us all. And to say that he put the iniquity of us all, of the elect, if you, if you limit it to the elect, then people will say, huh? What? It doesn't fit. This verse doesn't make sense unless it is read to say the same all. Well, I just went over that. Let's see. Um, the theologian Millard Erickson notes that this passage is especially powerful from a logical standpoint. It is clear that the extent of sin is universal. Everyone would agree with that, nearly, just about everybody. It is specified that every one of us has sinned. It should also be noticed that the extent of what will be laid on the suffering servant exactly parallels the extent of sin. 
It is difficult to read the passage and not conclude that just as everyone sins, everyone also atoned for, is atoned for. Okay, that was our first verse. Our second one, uh, there's two passages in Luke. The first one is in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said unto them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And what were the angels talking about? Well, the birth of Christ. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The lost in this verse refers, refers to, collective, to the collective whole of lost humanity. Not just to the lost elect. Who would think that? This is the most natural understanding of this verse. This was from A.T. Robertson, Word Pictures in the New Testament. So usually when you read these verses, unless you, are, you, you have a particular viewpoint or doctrine that you're trying to impose on the text, the normal reading is, is easy to understand, is it not? Who are the lost? It's the same ones that we saw in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. Now you go to Luke chapter 19 verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That would be the ones who have gone astray, each one seeking his own way. See, that thread throughout Scripture is constant. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming. This was John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the world here? We're going to have a lot more to say about the world when we get to John 3.16, which is coming up shortly. So what is the world here? Exegete B.F. Westcott tells us that the fundamental idea of cosmos, that's the Greek word here used for world, in John's gospel is that which belongs to the sphere of human life as an ordered whole considered apart from God. The world comes to represent humanity in its fallen state, alienated from its maker. That was from an exegete, B.F. Westcott. Y'all want to hear that again? He says in John's Gospel, world is that which belongs to the sphere of human life as ordered, as an ordered whole, considered apart from God. The world comes to represent humanity in its fallen state, alienated from its maker. That is one way that the world is used. It's used about six or seven different ways. But this is the one that surely fits here. Now, there's a few people that commented on this text, John 1.29. J.C. Ryle similarly states regarding this verse, What Christ took away and bore on the cross was not the sin of certain people only, but the whole accumulated mass of all sins of all children of Abraham, of, excuse me, of Adam. 
I hold as strongly as anyone that Christ's death is profitable to none but the elect who believe in his name. Now, we all agree to that. We would accede to that. It's only the, only the elect who believe in his name that profit from Christ's death on the cross. But I dare not limit and pare down such expressions as the ones before us. I dare not confine the intention of redemption to the saints alone. Christ is for every man. The atonement was made for all the world, though it is applied and enjoyed by none but believers. Okay, we're getting close to John 3.16, but we have to set, up, set it up with John 3.14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, the hard task of the Calvinist is to take words like whosoever and try to limit them. And the very fact that the English language is understood and you go to these definitions and you don't see whosoever limited, it, mean, it's, it's, it means essentially unlimited. When someone says, whoever, whoever will, Christ said, whoever will, let him come and drink from the water freely. What, what, do, you, what do you get in your mind when someone says, whoever? If you were a teenager, well, you don't have to be a teenager. You could be an adult. But when someone says, hey, I'm, I'm giving a party tonight at my house. It's going to be great. And the person says, well, who's invited? And if the person says, whoever, what are all the teenagers standing around going to think? Huh? Are they welcome there? Of course. What happens if they show up and they, they won't let them in? But she said, whoever. Well, she meant whoever that's in the club can come. Of course, that's, it's unlimited. Then that sets it up for John 3, 16. Just as Moses... Y'all remember, I think it's in Numbers, I'm not sure, it might be in Exodus, where the children of Israel had been disobedient and God sent these serpents. And they were biting the people and the people were dying. And they, well, they went to Moses. Poor Moses, he always caught all the grief. What are we going to do? The Lord told him to hammer out a, an image of a serpent and put it up on a pole, which he did. He held it up on a pole. And whosoever looked at that serpent would not die. All they had to do was look. What a perfect representation of Christ being lifted up on the cross. Lifted up on the cross, took our sins upon Himself, and all we have to do is believe. And all the people then in this in this experiential thing that they were going through, all they had to do was look. Could anybody argue that looking is a work? No. They're going to die because they were bit by the serpent. You see all the the typology in this. They were being bit by a physical serpent. Mankind is bit by the ultimate serpent, which is Satan. All they had to do is look. All we have to do is believe. 
That sets up John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the world, see that? That He gave His uniquely born Son that, look at that, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now when you look at, the, at these words, God so loved the world and whosoever, it's pretty hard to limit those, aren't they? Isn't it? If, if you, I know when I was a, 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 a little boy, and I guess all little boys and little girls were like this, <clears throat> and my dad would take me hunting, he'd take me fishing, we would have a great day, and on the way home I'd say, you know what, you're the best daddy in the world. Am I trying to limit that in any way? That's, that was my way of being as inclusive of everyone, every father on the whole planet. That's what I meant. And that's the way most people mean it. That's the word world and whosoever is essentially the same thing. <clears throat> There's some interesting t uh, comments that these uh, people make. This <clears throat> uh, came from Volume 2, a Schaefer's Theological Seminary uh, Journal. And it was by Ron Rhodes is the one that wrote this. And he says the following, quote, The Greek lexicons are unanimous that the word here denotes humankind, not the world of elect. It is critical to observe that John 3.16 cannot be divorced from the context that is set in verses 14 and 15, wherein Christ alludes to numbers. I knew it was numbers or exodus. And in numbers, this, this account is given in Numbers chapter 21. And in this passage, Moses is seen setting up the brazen serpent in the camp of Israel so that if any man looked to it, he experienced physical deliverance. In verse 15, Christ applies the story spiritually when he says that whosoever believes on the uplifted Son of Man shall experience spiritual deliverance. In other words, this is, that's the through with the quote. In, in Numbers 21, when it's talking about all these Israelites who are getting bit by these poisonous snakes, it doesn't limit anyone of these people that they are not able to get the image and be saved. And I might add this. This is another parallel that's important. None of these Israelites that were bitten by these snakes deserved to be forgiven, or in this case, deserved uh, to be saved from a horrible death. None of them did. They were all in the same boat. And yet, no one was going to be uh distinctive with regards to, well, these people over here, if they look, they're going to, to, to be saved. But these over here, uh, even, either they can't look or if they look, they're not going to um, be saved. There's none of that. So that's an important point because you always have to set it up with a context. The two verses before John 3.16 set it up that it is unlimited in nature and it's the same in John 3.16. Here's a corollary to this novel uses of usage of the word world to mean the elect, which involves the understanding of John 3.16. 
does it mean that God loved the elect? Because that's what the, you understand, this is what the Calvinists would say. For God so loved the world of the elect, that whosoever of the elect that believes in him. That's the way they would translate this. So he's saying, does it, if that's the case, does it mean God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever of the elect believes should not perish but have everlasting life? If it does, then doesn't it follow that God does not love the non-elect? Because this comes out, if this is only referring to the elect, for God so loved the world of the elect. That is excluding others, see? So he's saying, if that is so, that he's only talking about the world of the elect, then how can anyone invite a lost person to come to Christ? Perhaps Christ did not die for them, and God does not love them. One thing is for certain, no five-point Calvinist can tell a lost soul that Christ died for them. So you have to conclude, if you're going to take this literally the way they say it should be, that God so loved the world of the elect that whosoever, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever of the elect believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That would presuppose that God only loves the elect. And it would be logical because God purposely sent Christ to the cross not to die for the unelect, but only for the elect because he loves the elect. And I don't know how many Calvinists I've talked to that went to Romans chapter 9 and point out, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, and they kind of brag about it. As if individually, before they have even been born, God would hate uh, Isaac, I mean uh, Esau. And of course, that portion of Scripture isn't even talking about two individuals. These two individuals represent two nations. One was a nation of believers, the other was not. Further, as stated previously, if God does not love the non-elect, then it follows that it is, it is His will that they reject Christ, who is, after all, not sent to save them anyway. If that is true, then verses like John 3.36 are simply incoherent. Now, you all know John 3.36. He who believes on the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What is the whole thing in that? Is believing or not believing. And so what he's saying, if Christ didn't die for him anyway, then verses like John 3.36 that I just quoted are simply incoherent. Why would the Bible say he who believes on the Son has eternal life when, when Christ didn't even die for most of humanity? And they cannot believe in him according to the tea and tulip, because they are uh, totally depraved. They are unable to believe the gospel. And God does not give them the grace to believe like he does the ones that he loves, which is the elect. Those are the ones that Christ died for. Then how can he saying that if that's the case, John 3.36 and doctrines uh, like that are incoherent. Condemnation becomes a doctrine grounded in a voltantastic fiat of God that is not based in his character. Now, I said it. 
Does anybody know what it is? <laughs> I looked it up and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I, my best guess is that it has to do something with volunteering from the first part of this word. A voluntanstick, I guess that's how you say it. You see, I try to weed a lot of these things out. I, I missed this one because these theologians, they have a, a big vocabulary and they like to use it. I mean, if they can say something simple to where everybody can understand it, it doesn't make them look so scholarly. So they will use ver words like this that I, who knows what that word means. Yes, it's a word. Well, I don't know. No, it, I, and yes, it's spelled correctly because I just cut and paste this on here. So the spell check, it's not on the spell check is why that red line is under it. So I know some of you are, might be wordsmith, and so your homework assignment, <laughs> it's V-O-L-U-T-A-N-S-T-I-C. Do I? Ty, I'm not understanding what you're saying. Oh, fiat. Okay. Well, you know what fiat is. Just open your wallet and you'll see a lot of fiat money there. I mean, we know what fiat means. The whole point, what do you think? Condemnation becomes a doctrine grounded in... Um, Something about uh, God is, a, is, is the fiat. He's the um, substitution that is not based in his character. Something along those lines. Yes, Mary. Yeah, uh, something like that. I, I still think that this word from the first part of it has to do with something voluntary. But let's not get so bogged down on this word that we miss the principle. I mean, if any of you can, can look, don't look it up now. Don't worry about it now. I want you to get the point. Uh, what he's saying, if, if, if John 3.16 means that God so loved the world of the elect that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever of the elect believes and so forth. So he's saying then, then there's a lot of verses like John 3.36 that are a farce. They, they just don't even... It would be convoluted then we go to the next verse john three seventeen. for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him commenting on this verse listen who said this, this listen where this quote is coming from calvin calvin said that quote god is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to be the salvation of the world, end of quote. Clearly, God has made the provision of salvation available to all human beings. That's the thing. Christ on the cross made the provision for all mankind to be saved. And, of course, the Calvinists would say, if that's true, then why aren't all men saved? Well, because God has set it up in such a way that people have to accept the gospel. He's the one that did it. We're going to see that no one is condemned for their sin. They're condemned for 
rejecting the gospel. God put a condition upon those who are going to live with him in heaven for all eternity, and that is positive volition towards the gospel. Okay, um, do you all need to rest? Okay. John 4:42. Now, this has to do with the uh, woman at the well that Christ was with. Remember that he talked to? And she remember she went into the city and told everybody she was so excited. This man told me everything about myself. I'd never met him. You know, he must be the Messiah. And so they, the guys came down, and they're going to check it out for themselves. And that's where we pick it up in verse 42. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They didn't believe because of what she said. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, you know why that's significant in this verse? One reason it's significant? Because these were Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. And yet, these guys, these men, heard for themselves, they heard the Lord, and they know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world, and that would include the Jews, which they hate. They got the point. It would be harder for them to sign on to unlimited atonement. They would be more than happy if it was limited to everyone except the Jews. And the Jews were the same way. Jews, when they heard Paul come back and give a report that he was going out and, and uh, witnessing to all these Gentiles, they didn't like it a bit. They wanted no part of that because they hated them. They wanted to be exclusive, just Jewish. Christ died for the Jews. And then uh, it came around to where they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll accede to, to Gentiles being saved. They can, they can be saved, but they have to be circumcised. And they have to be, you know, take part in the rituals and the Judaism and all that. And that's when the big fight happened and when... Paul had to stand his ground and say, there's no way this is going to happen. So in John 4:42, they said, this one indeed is the Savior of the world. It is quite certain that when the Samaritans called Jesus the Savior of the world, they were not thinking of the world of the elect. Wouldn't you agree? To read such a meaning into this text would be sheer asegesis. Now this one I can explain. <laughs> even though it's a Greek word, I can, I can explain some Greek words better than I can these English ones they throw out sometimes. Um, E-I-S means into. And, and when we talk about exegesis, we're talking about reading out of the text what is there. He's talking about asegesis, which is reading something into the text that is not there. So that's what he's saying. It would be sure, Asa Jesus. I know that a lot of you have seen this word, E-I-S, pronounced ice, because there's a certain church where they pronounce it that way, but it's the correct pronunciation is ace, E-I-S. 
Likewise, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12, he certainly wasn't thinking of, uh, thinking of himself as the light of the world of the elect. The sun in the heaven shines on all men, though some in their folly may choose to withdraw into dark caves to evade its illuminating rays. So Christ is the light of the world in a spiritual sense, just as the sun is the light of the world in a physical sense, it illumines, it lights, its, its, its light falls on all men, and so does Christ with regards to his atonement. I'm not reading all these uh, footnotes. I've got them here, but it just bores people to tears, and you can get them on the notes, and these will be available to you if you want them. Here we have John 12:47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. Of course, there's a, do you know that there's over 20 verses that the Calvinists have to add the word elect in it, like this one, in order to have it be limited atonement? He didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world of the elect. Is the way they have to have it. Romans chapter five, verse six: For while we were still helpless, at the right hand, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's a quote from Norman Doughty: The death of Christ, and he says, "Quote: Christ died for the ungodly." It doesn't make much sense to read this as saying that Christ died for the ungodly among the elect. Rather, the verse read plainly indicates that Christ died for all the ungodly of the earth. Who are the ungodly? Huh? All of us are ungodly. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Even the elect are in an ungodly state, if you want to call it that, prior to their accepting the gospel. Romans 5.18 So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to who? All men. That's easy, right? What we've been talking about. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Wow, justification of life to all men. What is that talking about? Well, here's another quote. This is from uh, John Calvin. This is on Romans 5.18. He says, regarding this verse, Calvin commented, he makes this favor common to all because it is propoundable to all. It means, you know, they can all meditate on it, think about it, and understand it. And not because... It is in reality extended, uh, extended to all, that is, in their experience. For though Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world and is offered through God's uh, benignity, is that right? Benignity, indiscriminately to all, yet all do not receive him. This sounds very much like Calvin was teaching unlimited atonement, doesn't it? And yet his followers... See, a lot of the things that John Calvin said uh, was twisted and tainted by a guy by the name of 
uh, Theodore Beza. And he took a lot of what Calvin said and went further than Calvin did. And there are a lot of people today that call themselves Calvinists that would be aghast that Calvin would say, and this is a quote, that in, uh, in, in reality that um, Christ died for the world. Regarding the two occurrences, now look at here, in this verse, you have all two times resulted in condemnation to all, justification of life to all. See that? And he's saying, regarding the two occurrences of the phrase, all men, just as a result of one trespass, condemnation came to all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was the justification that brings life for all men. Impartial exegesis, exegesis is taking in the grammatical and the uh, syntax and, and translating this. It says impartial exegesis demands that the phrase must have the same extent in both clauses. That means if it means all who uh, are condemned for one trespass, then it means that all have to be uh, under the category of justification that brings life. And then he, he explains it here. In other words, just as all men on earth were brought to a state of condemnation through one sin, Adams, y'all all got that down, right? Okay. So salvation was made available for all men by Christ's death on the cross. Through the reception of salvation... Excuse me, though the reception of salvation depends upon exercising faith in Jesus. See, here's the whole thing Christ took care of man's sin problem. All man's sin, mankind's sin, was taken care of on the cross. However, what that did, all men are not saved because that isn't the totality of what God has given for man to be saved. Christ made salvation available to all mankind. The only condition is that they receive forgiveness by faith in Christ. That's the only... That's, people are not condemned for their sins. They're condemned for rejecting Christ. That's the way that God has established it. And that answers the question, well, if Christ died for all men... Mankind, why isn't all mankind safe? Because God set it up to where man uses his volition. He's responsible for his volition the way he uses it. And if he rejects the atonement that God made for all men whereby they can be forgiven, then they're condemned for that. That's why they go to hell. See, I think one reason so many people gravitate to Calvinism because they don't understand or they don't accept, they've never been taught that no one goes to hell for their sins. Why do people not think that through? It's not hard. Most people you'll come in contact with, if you ask them, why do people go to hell? Well, because of their sins. Why did Christ go to the cross then? Did he fail? The Calvinists would say, oh, well, he did. He was successful. He died for all the sins of the elect. Well, we have some real problems if that's the case. And we're looking at some of the verses here that prove that that's not what happened. 
fact is that Christ was successful on the cross. No one is condemned for their sins. They're condemned for rejecting Jesus Christ. If one person was condemned for one personal sin, then that means it would have to be excluded from Christ's atonement on the cross. And when he was on the cross, he, what did he say? It is finished. It's finished. He took care of the sin problem. No sins went unpunished. Okay, I think I'm going to save this one. 2 Corinthians 5.19. You know this is one of my favorite verses. I think what I'll do, I'll just go over it fast right now. Just a couple of little things here. That's a, it's, it's just a paragraph here. And then I'll start there again next time because you might forget it by, next, by this Thursday anyway. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. I never, when I quote this, I don't put, namely, that's, this is a translation that I don't use. Uh, the, the, we translate it by uh, God was in Christ. And this is the part, listen to this reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now just think about that for a moment. This says that Christ was reconciling what? The world. Unlimited. Of course, I know the Calvinist way. He was reconciling the world of the elect. I mean, they have to keep adding that in there. Well, what does it mean, reconciling the world? When Christ was on the cross, he reconciled the world to himself. It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, okay, the whole world is reconciled to God in this sense that Christ paid for their sins of the entire world. That's what it means. And then we conclude, if Christ did pay for the sins of the entire world, the next phrase, what does it say? And not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. How could he? How could God hold one sin against anyone if Jesus Christ reconciled the world to himself while he was on the cross? How can someone allege that Christ only died for a limited number of people and the rest of humanity go to hell for their sins? And you see why this verse is so powerful? Not counting their trespasses against them, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Christ reconciled the world to himself on the cross by paying the penalty for all mankind. Therefore, the world is reconciled to God in that sins are not held against mankind anymore. They can't. If God held one sin against you, a personal sin, and you, he condemned you for that sin, then he would not be God because he was unjust because this verse says that Christ took care of the sin issue. God the Father condemned Jesus Christ for the sins of the entire world. He would be unjust condemning Christ. Christ suffered for that and then turn around and say, you're going to suffer as well. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Christ, Christ took care of that issue on the cross. No one is condemned for their sins, but condemnation is on those who reject God's offer of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that hard? That's not hard. Why can't we tell people? Why do we have to get all jumbled up when someone comes along and says, oh, well, yeah, tulip, uh, uh, unlimited atonement is a heresy. Christ only died for the elect. Really? 
Now, it is true, and we'll get into this next time, that only the elect are going to take advantage of the blessings that come through the cross through faith in Christ. Only elect are going to do that. And the only reason they're called elect is because God elected them in eternity past to demonstrate His omniscience. Time is nothing with God. God knows everything. Every fact in the whole universe is in God's mind constantly. He always knows it. Time is not even an element. I was seeing something on Channel 8. Uh, I'm not going to go back anymore to this. I'm through with this, so I want you to just don't think I'm stretching. Um, I saw something on the uh, TV. What's going on here? It's supposed to go off. There. Okay. I saw something on TV. It was way over my head, but I got a little glimpse of it. It was on some scientific channel, and it was saying that now they're not. They, 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 there's a theory. They think there's no such thing as a universe anymore. They're saying that, it, that now there are multiverses. In other words, billions and billions of universes. And, and they go through all this. I don't know, strings out there, all these other things. I don't know what they're talking about. But I, 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 th I thought of the concept. I thought, well, you know, I don't care if there was multi-universes. I don't think there are, but if there are, it doesn't matter to me because God is sovereign over all. He made them all. I, I don't know why people want to come up with things like multi-universes because we can't even get our mind around our solar system or the Milky Way, much less the universe. And now they're coming up with multi-universes. Uh, my, my, the reason I'm telling you that is because God's omniscience. If the, let's just take for, let's say that there are multi universes, and there are who knows what's on those other uni, in those other universes. Whatever there is, God knows every single to the minute detail about everything. God is holding all the stars, the universe together. He's holding. The atoms in our bodies, in this, in this church, everything. Everything is held, by the power, held together by the power of His Word. And if it was not so, just think of the... Everything would just disintegrate. That's how great our God is. And I'm just saying, I'm going to close with this. How can a God that great stoop so low as to be gracious to some and condemn others when they're no different than the ones that he, that he blesses and saves. That's against logic. That's against all sense of grace. And what we'll do as we're going through here, we just you'd be surprised how many verses I have on unlimited atonement. Now I, wanna, I want you to go through these because I want it solidified in your soul that anything short of Christ dying for the sins of all mankind is a slap in the face to the character of God. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that you are a God of grace, mercy, love, compassionate. We thank you that your word, you claim it. We don't have to sit on the fence and say, well, it's inscrutable, nobody can know. This is just something that, that you give us in your word that no one can understand. It is your word that straightens out everything. We need to live by your word. 
think about it, meditate on it, and be ready to give a reason to anyone at any time that asks for the hope that is in us. And part of that hope is that confidence knowing that you are a wonderful, majestic, gracious, loving God. We pray that you will help us to be ready for the controversies and attacks that will probably be coming our way. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.